pull up a chair and buckle up. It's the Original Strength Podcast. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's edition of the Original Strength Podcast. Got an awesome show for you this week. I am talking with Miss Jessica Wolf. Uh, Jessica is, well, she created Jessica Wolf's The Art of Breathing. She has been an Alexander Technique teacher for over 40 years, and she's also a professor at Yale University where she teaches drama. Anyway, this is a fantastic conversation. You're going to want to take notes because Jessica says things about breathing that, well, they're awesome. Things I haven't even heard before. So, pull up a chair, buckle up. This is the Original Strength Podcast. Glad to be here. <laughs> I, so, I told you when, when I taught you the first time that I first learned about Carl Stowe from the, from the book uh, Breath with uh, James Nestor. Um, and if anybody knows Carl Stowe, it's you. you you've worked with him for 20 years. I did. I did. From 1978 to the year 2000, when he passed away. Wow. So what was he like? And, and, and how was it training and learning with Carl Stowe? Um, I never trained with Carl because he didn't believe it would be possible to train teachers, but he mentored me. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, Working with Carmen was an extraordinary experience. He was a one-of-a-kind man. He was a genius with a kind of knowledge uh, about the breath that was quite functional, artistic, expressive, and it just unified the whole way he would work. He worked in a very small center. And he worked with his clients on a table. So we were we would lie down one on one, just I would be on the table, and he would put his hands on me. And he would be able to listen with his hands, see with his eyes, and hear the sound. And as a result of those three sensations being heightened. He could tell you what was going on with your breathing. It was almost as if he had x-ray vision. And he would know whether there was a synchronization of all the parts of the respiratory system or whether there was an interference. And then he would very slowly restore the coordination, the natural coordination. Whether you were a singer and an athlete, a musician who played a horn instrument, a dancer, somebody who had neurological disease, people who had heightened emotional issues, people who were young and old, everybody could be helped with Carl's knowledge. Awesome. And he, he had something that he called breathing coordination. Right. What, what, what is breathing coordination? It's a specific organization of all the muscles of respiration that are organized differently for each human being because he believed that everybody had an individual way of breathing. Although he used the similar methods for everyone, each human being is so unique 
that he wanted to make sure that the coordination was about this particular human being's design and application. So if I was to describe his idea of coordination, I would talk about the first place that he would genuinely go was right to the top of the chest. And right below the collarbones, there's an area at the top of the sternum called the manubria, where the first two ribs are attached. And then the rest of the ribs come in via the cartilage to the sternum. He would notice if somebody's sternum was pushed and lifted or whether it was collapsed and retreated. And with that, he was able to get a lot of information about the shoulder girdle, the neck, the jaw, the way the tongue rests inside the mouth, how it moves, how the head balances on top of the stomach. And then he would go to the ribs and he would encourage mobility of the ribs, skeletal. And then he would begin to listen to the coordination of that primary muscle, the diaphragm, how it would descend and rise, how as it descended, it would spread and the ribs could spring, how as it descended, when it spread and descended, the ribs could swing, the lungs would fill because that diaphragm was making space inside the foot. And then that sense of the diaphragm rising and going inside the ribs so that the ribs could gently break and the diaphragm could begin to guide the air out of the ribs. And he would create this coordination. Whether you were a person that had respiratory disease, whether you were an athlete who wanted better oxygenation, or whether you were a performing artist who needed to use your breath and your voice, and then all of the rest of the folks in between those three categories, he would help you to coordinate your breath with your body. Like I said, I learned about Carl from the from James Nestor's book, um, and somehow that led me on. I've learned about a lot of people since then, uh, and it's led me to to meet you. And everybody has this way that they think the body should breathe, or they they have a way of manipulating breath to try to achieve certain th states in the body. Now, and you've created your uh, Jessica Wolf, the art of breathing. I imagine you have a way. What is, how, how should a person breathe? Well, I'm afraid I can't answer that question. But what I can tell you is that every human being is able to restore the, the sensation of breathing. Breathing is movement. And most often, because we've got so much to think about in the lives, we don't register the sensation of breathing. Mm -hmm. It's movement, and breathing occurs three-dimensionally inside of the entire torso. 
So during during the breathing cycle, the breath moves out, the new breath to return, and the breath moves out again, and the new breath arrives. There's there's an ability to develop a reliable sensory appreciation. And everybody can develop it. When once you find that, you begin to notice little habits that you've had around your breathing that may have gotten in the way of efficient and effortless breathing. So if, for instance, you can if you begin to trust that breathing is reflexive, that you never have to take another breath in your whole life. Because if you let a breath out, a new breath will come in. And how do we allow that to happen? How do we develop that trust? Well, we renew the thought. Well, it's, it's inspiring to know that there is a natural and spontaneous autonomic response. There is a reflexive response to each breath we have. And I teach people how to stimulate that ongoing perpetual cycle. I always start with the out breath. Start with the out breath because one, there's always some air in the pipes. Two, we're just trying to get, get the old air which sometimes I refer to as the stale air, out so a fresh air can return in whatever volume of air we need for that particular moment, for that activity. Um, so to restore the sensation and to release the movements around the breath can take time because people have tightened. And many folks have tried different kinds of breathing techniques to restore their natural coordination, but in fact, it's thrown them off balance. So it's my belief that since our breath responds to our thoughts and our respiratory system and our nervous system are intimately connected, we don't have to do anything to breathe. We've got to get out of our own way. And if we get out of our own way, the breath will do itself. So you kind of just mentioned this. Um, you said that our breath responds to our thoughts and I've heard you, I heard you on another interview talking about how emotions and breathing kind of dance together. How do emotions affect breathing or how does breathing affect emotions? It's pretty much simultaneous. Um, because we're whole people. I don't, I don't ever think of the respiratory system as separate from my spirit, my emotions, or my physical activity, my mental activity. But I, I call the diaphragm that primary muscle of respiration. I mean, there are lots of muscles of respiration, but there is this one primary. It's 
call the diaphragm the muscle of emotion. Because if you think about the activity in your body when sadness comes over you and you, you experience that sobbing, that crying that's like a sob and you know that your diaphragm is moving inside of and when something is so funny that it just tickles every cell, every molecule in your body, you become so hysterical laughing that you can feel how your diaphragm is alive inside. And those are, you know, the opposite ends of the spectrum. But in general, in life, children are set free and we care for them when um, when they fall, when they're children, we pick them up and we soothe them. And we engage them in laughter when they're young. But then once they go into those kindergarten classes and there are 25 kids and one or two teachers, the little one is on the playground and they fall and they scrape their knee and they start to cry. Teacher comes over and says, you're a big girl, you're a big boy. And that little child learns to muffle their breath, their emotion, their spirit. They return to the classroom. They're sitting on the floor and the teacher is reading a story. And all of a sudden, that one eye, one, one of the kids sees something that makes them laugh. And another child catches that moment and begins to laugh. And they begin to laugh out loud. And the teacher says, no laughing. Quiet now. I'm reading. Once again, that muscle of emotion gets muffled. And we learn as we grow up to quiet our emotional responses. Heightened emotion is here. There's nothing we can do about it. We all have heightened emotion. And to kind of be living on this monotone level of, oh, I'm happy. I'm, I'm angry. No, that's not what it is. When you're angry, you're raging. And when there's joy, it just goes through your whole being. So I think that um, when we start to pay attention kinesthetically to that felt sense, that's what the kinesthetic sense is, the felt sense, we can notice when we've held our breath. And if we can just release the breath, we can very often release the emotion that rides on top of the breath. And if it's not appropriate to release it when you're sitting in the middle of a um, a classroom where a professor is teaching, and you know not to do that, but you can at least let your breath out. Just holding on to it, holding your breath back, stifling your breath, muffling your breath. It's not good for your, your body, it's not good for your mind, it's not good for your spirit. That was fantastic. Oh, good. <laughs> I love that. The, the muscle of emotion and the way you described it, like telling a child not to, because 
we, we and, and that could be why we all as adults struggle with our emotions anyway because of the you know that you get when you're younger like hide your feelings or whatever but that made so much sense yeah and then of course you know when you when you think about anxiety and depression again i'm giving you the two ends of the spectrum but mm -hmm. it's it's important um anxiety has a very different breathing pattern for each individual um, as opposed to depression. Depression is generally a very slow, short pattern. And the breath and the voice will sound sustained. Anxiety is up here. And it's a lot of accessory breathing muscles up in the neck and the chest. And the sound gets lifted up, it gets a little breathier and it gets a little faster, it accelerates. So those are those two very different places that we all experience when we're feeling, when, we're, when it, something happens that causes us to go into heightened emotion. And there is nothing wrong with heightened emotion. It's just that some people Breathing is like a balance wheel in the body. And so when you get into that heightened emotion, you want to also remember to return to the ongoing cycle of the breath, rather than to go too far over, because then you get thrown off the bed, you lose your balance. So you go into your heightened emotion, and then you return. And we know how to do this by letting our breath out, inviting the new breath to return, and then we begin to let our breath out again. So our voice rides our breath, and then a new breath arrives. We come back into balance. So it's a it's literally a true letting go technique. You you let the emotion pass through you by letting go of your breath and experiencing the emotion along with the uh, allowing yourself to exhale. Right, right. And sometimes when, when I see a person individually, I find that for no reason whatsoever, when somebody begins to just work on their breath, emotions start to come rising up and tears come out or giggles come out. And, you know, people might apologize. Oh, I'm so sorry. And no, I welcome that because we don't know what specifically is triggered. It doesn't matter. There's some release occurring. And so that's wonderful when it comes from the breath that releases the emotions and we don't even have to identify. This is, okay. So, so if somebody learns how to breathe, they can let go of old emotional traumas and wounds that yes. are stuck in that are stuck in their body potentially. Yes. Yes. You know, you know, um, the saying muscle has memory. Yes. Breathing muscle, it's invisible for us all. The breath is invisible for us all, but it has memory. And um if an adult has had a painful injury, 
and axle. That adult may heal and the, uh, the broken arm or the collarbone that came apart or the concussion, whatever it might be, you may heal. But the trauma around that healing is still there. And if we can encourage ease and efficiency in the respiratory system, we can often get to that proprioceptive sense where we're feeling the pain or the anger and then the release and the freedom once we can move through it. That's awesome. Thank you. Welcome. Which leads me to another question. I heard you talk about undoing hardness and pushing through or pushing through. What does that mean? Okay. I am not a fan of breathing exercises that are prescriptive, that are measured. Breathe in on five counts, hold for three counts, breathe out on six counts. I just chose those numbers. I think that that's a prescription for everyone. And you and I don't have the same bodies, we don't have the same tasks, and we certainly don't have the same uh, applications. You might be a runner and I may be a singer. I may stand in front of my kitchen counter and peel carrots, and you might be picking up socks from the floor. Every activity is different. So to teach me a prescribed way with measured breath causes me to harden inside and force my particular rhythm, my tempo, to be somebody else's. And it so confuses me whenever I've tried to do it that I think I've, I've been doing this for a long time, since 1978. I have somewhat learned about my respiratory system. I know there's more to go, but I have a somewhat sophisticated respiratory system and I don't feel comfortable breathing on measured counts to quiet my nervous system. That's what those techniques are for. I get hardened inside. I start to fix. And then what do I do? I kind of gasp for air because somebody's telling me what my rhythm should be, what my heartbeat should be, what my impulses should be. Don't buy it. Awesome. How do you think, so the concept of, and you teach, you teach drama uh, yes, students I, at, at Yale. I teach some of the finest actors, wonderful, wonderful. Do you marry breath with movement? Yes, I do. How does that work? Well, if we don't hold our breath, then there's potential for breathing and movement to be coordinated. So the harmony of the breath, if 
Um, um, something that I do a lot of is I do swings, swings up and down, side to side, and on the diagonals. And swings are something that every human being, every body can do. And people come in all sizes and all shapes. But a swing seems to be inherently easy for people to find. With every swing, there's a breath. With every swing, we find the recuperation, and then we go into the exertion. And the breath comes in. And the breath may be different for each individual. But when the actor begins to train and can find their breath that morning, and it's different by the time they go into rehearsal that afternoon, they begin to trust that the breath is going to be there for them, either to fuel the movement or to release the impulse. So I work with actors in that way. I also, um, I'm a trained teacher in the Alexander Technique, and I've been teaching the Alexander Technique for 42 years. And the Alexander Technique is a very particular technique that is always tending to the individual's habits, the unconscious habits that may have interfered with their coordination. And for an actor or for an athlete or for any human being um, to learn a particular balance of their head to their spine, to their back, to their legs, to their arms, allows for a freedom and an increase of sensation and coordination. So I work with principles from the art of breathing and procedures from the Alexander Technique when I teach. Sounds like you could really help athletes uh, with everything you just said there as well. Yes. Now you know about Carl Stow with athletes, right? Only, only from what I read, or from from James Nestor's book and Wikipedia, by the way. I did a little bit of research. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing when you think that uh, in 1968 the Olympics were occurring in Mexico City, and athletes weren't accustomed to being uh, to competing in higher altitudes. So they met and practiced for I don't know how many months in the Sierra Nevadas. And Carl went there, was hired by the Olympic team. And he had just um, completed a piece of his work, really solidified a piece of his work, which was work with patients who had profound respiratory disease and were hooked up to oxygen machines. And he found that they were gasping for air. They were taking these short breaths. Uh, there's a terrible disease that's called COPD. And it's a um, disease where the lungs lose their elasticity. So you try to get as much breath in and out as you can. Um, and he, he saw a lot of patients lying in the beds gasping for air, taking very short breaths. And soon after that, 
He was hired by the Olympic team to go out and work with these really good athletes. These young athletes who were as proficient as you could be, but in the higher altitude, they, they fell off of that balance wheel and they were breathing in thinking that they needed more air than they really did need, which is what he observed when he was working with his respiratory patients. Uh. People were breathing in more than they needed. And when he worked with his respiratory patients, he encouraged them to let their breath out. And he did it by asking them to do, to do the simplest thing, which was well, two simple things. One is to let the tip of the tongue flap inside the mouth and to just allow a silent law. So the back of the throat stays open. In a way, what you're doing is tricking your glottis, the vocal folds are not coming together. There's no resistance to the air. Or he would have people very sloppy, nobody needed enunciation because it was silent again, move their tongue in their lips and count silently. Fast forward, that's it, you got it. You, you just follow your breath to its natural conclusion. You don't go any further than its natural conclusion because you know that a new breath will come back in because that diaphragm is so tiny, so resilient, so elastic that it knows exactly when to ask for more air. The runners were also overbreathing. And he began to notice that there was a little bit of a hardening right by this pneumonia wall. Same thing that he saw with these respiratory patients who were bedridden. And here are these fabulous athletes. So he asked them to silently count down. And then to just release so that the air comes. And when they went back out on the track, they took this with them and they worked on it as they were running. And they worked on it as they were getting ready and warming up. And so Carl began to see that it wasn't, he just wasn't only helping these sick patients respiratory conditions, but he could help people that were really fit and help them be more proficient. And when he returned to New York City, because you'll be interested to know that he, his beginning was in North Carolina. UNC. Yeah. And, and he, um, he was the conductor for the Lost Colony, that choral group, that famous yes. music. Um, Anyway, so when he, he had moved to New York, he moved north, and he came back, and there were all these musicians and opera singers who were coming to see him, and he realized that these are the trained voices of the world, and yet they, too, were hardening and holding their breath and fixing, at times, 
when they didn't need to. So he was able to do very similar things with the singers. And he would build on it to get the turnover of air to find back motion. Oh, that was very important for the athletes. Back motion. Back motion is when, when the ribs articulate at the spine. There's a tremendous amount of mobility for each rib by each vertebrae to move. And Carl believed that um, many people would tighten in their thoracic spines. So when he was able to get that primary muscle respiration, the diaphragm tucked inside moving, he found that he could increase the mobility in the spine. And when the diaphragm begins, began to do that, the whole back began to move. And breathing is an activity of the back. Oh, yes. Of course, we're three-dimensional, so we always feel it in front. But it happens to be an activity of the back. And um, when the diaphragm is rising on the exhale, it's creating a visceral massage to all the organs beneath the diaphragm, your stomach, your liver, your kidneys, your pancreas, your intestines, on down to the floor of your lungs. So if you can imagine that if an individual has any elimination problems or digestion problems, how wonderful it is to have that visceral massage, that feeling of the entire circumference of the body changing shape. Pretty special. And the back motion is encouraged because the diaphragm originates on the lumbar spine. And so if, if we think about the tendons, they're called pleura, the bottom of the diaphragm that are anchoring the diaphragm, and then it moves all the way up to the back and then it begins to sew itself around every rib front, side, and back. And that inner tendon, central tendon, at the top of the diaphragm starts to move down and up. The body is experiencing movement from the inside. And the organs and the muscles and bones are being moved by the system, by the respiratory system. It is a wonderful design. It is a wonderful design. Couldn't agree with you more. And the lungs that are housed up in your upper ribs are constantly changing shape on every exhalation and inhalation. So it's nice to know that there's a tremendous amount of movement inside us that most of us don't get to experience because we don't quiet our minds enough to listen. Is 
does that have anything to do with, I heard you say something one time about using our minds to unmute the inside story. Is, is, is that yes. related? Yes. Yes. Um, there's so much information you can get from the inside, but it does seem that a lot of us are anxious to change. We really want to change. We really want to improve our So we'll try this, we'll do that, we'll hold our belly and we'll push on our ribs and we'll pull them up. But really, if we could just stop, red light, for a nanosecond, to listen, to consider that there may be choices that are less pushing and possibly more profound for the individual. We listen and we begin to hear a change. You can actually hear the change in the quality of the voice. So unmuting is when the real stuff starts to come through. Awesome. Jessica, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me. So welcome. You are so, so welcome. Pleasure to be with you today. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. If you would like to know more about Jessica Wolf, check out her website, jessicawolfartofbreathing.com. There you can learn about her courses, uh, how to train with Jessica. You can read her articles and even watch a very cool video about the diaphragm and what it does. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it.